I want us to see all of this in context. I read some of it uh, last Sunday. And I want you to have a bit of a mind this morning as we're reading and talking uh, for this thing, this table, not thing, this table in front of me. We, 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 we have communion at least once a month on the first Sunday of the month. Sometimes we do it a number of weeks in a row. And then there's sometimes that texts of passages of Scripture just simply say, you must do communion at the end of this. And as Beth and I met this week, Beth and I meet every week to talk about worship and, and, and work through the liturgy and all of that. It was hilarious because we were both assuming communion, even though it wasn't the week for communion, but it just sort of was there. So we'll have communion. We're not going to sing during communion this week. So there. No particular reason, just that we did our singing. And so I want you to have a mind as I preach to think, and as we read this text, to think about how will I end up at this table then, given all that is here and all that I'm and all that I'm hearing. All right, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Hear the word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in, your, in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another on all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You might remember that last Sunday I read, sort of from the middle of chapter 2 through these first five verses, or four verses in chapter 3, and said that what really... um, um, brings them about in the mind of the apostle, I think at least, is, is this last part of verse 23, where Paul says this, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Um, and so the question for us is, what is of value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh? Paul comes to this because his ministry is a ministry of bringing people to maturity in Christ. You remember in chapter 2, he said, 
or the end of chapter 1, he said that it's his goal, his purpose to present everyone mature in Christ. And that maturity in Christ is bringing people first individually to a sense of knowing the very will of God, which is Christ, knowing Christ. And to live, I'm going to say it again, I say this every week now in Colossians, should know what I'm going to say. You've been saying, should be saying it to yourself every day. To live worthy of Christ, worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. That's this sense of maturity. Mature ones know that they're to live this way, desire to live this way, and are getting on with living this way, which is living in a way that's fully pleasing to this one who is the Lord, to Christ. Living worthy of this one who is the Lord, who is Christ. Fully pleasing to him. And you might remember, if you can think back to chapter 1, the prayer that Paul prays, he sort of fleshes that out a bit, at least there. To, to, to live worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, is to bear fruit in every good work. It's to increase in the knowledge of God. It's to be so strengthened by God that we're able to endure with patience, to persevere, with joy, and we're to be people who give thanks. Uh, this maturity is put a bit differently in chapter 2 and verse 6. And he says, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. That's the walking part, the living it out. Rooted and built up in Him and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Similar kinds of things. But he says, you've been rooted, now grow. You've been rooted, now be built up. And all of this with thanksgiving. Um, He's going to go on to tell us, we've, we've read in this passage, we won't get to it all together, but the, the, the purpose of, of our lives is to live in such a way that we, that we glorify Him. We put off the, we've put off the old self, uh, put on the new self, and, and now this maturity is happening, which is, in verse 10, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. So, so Paul's after restoring people to the image of Christ. That's this sense of maturity, individually. Corporately, there's a sense of corporate uh, maturity as well when the people of God, according to Ephesians 4, reach this unity of the faith, where, where together as a community of people, they're loving each other in such a way that, and, and following after Christ in such a way that they're not being tossed to and fro by every new little fad that comes into the Christian community or every heresy that attacks it. But rather, they're... they're communally, corporately, together, maturing in the things of God by way of Christ. So that, that's his goal there, individually, corporately. And we could, we could use one word to describe it all, and it's really holiness. And he desires us to be holy, to walk in holiness, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love each other as Christ has loved us. That whole sense of love. So, that's what Paul's after here to bring maturity. And, and there's false teachers in Colossae who aren't helping at all. That they're saying things and teaching things that are of no value in, 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 in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This flesh being this, this sin, the sinful inclinations in us. And he says these things are of no value in stopping them. Uh, they're, they're simply rules to follow. Uh, rules that may have very little to do actually with the heart. Rules that may have very little to do with, with actually pleasing the Lord and following after Him and walking worthy of Him, uh, honoring special days, not eating certain foods, not drinking certain drinks, those kinds of things. And, and he says they're simply not helpful. 
They don't help at all. In fact, they, they may actually detract from living worthy of Christ, fully pleasing to him, because they, they may make us proud. These are the things that we can do. We can actually do these things in our own strength. We can, we can not drink, not eat. We can do those kinds of things with enough willpower, and we can show, therefore, that we really are worthy, which isn't living worthy of Christ at all. And so he says, they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So the question then, what is? So he begins to lay this out for us. And as we start verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, he begins with this statement. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ. Remember, all of what we're to do as followers of Christ is based on what he has already done. All that we're to do is based upon, founded upon, what he has already done. We're not doing so that he will accept us. He has accepted us, therefore we will do. Very different, those two things. And so Paul begins with that. He says, that if then you've been raised with Christ, something has happened. Um, notice then, um, in verse 3, he says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. These are things that have happened through, by way of, the work of Christ. And see, that's the point we've got to settle. That because of Christ, our relationship to sin has changed. On the one hand, it's changed because because of the death of Christ, for him paying the penalty for our sin, we're no longer under its condemnation. The punishment has been taken. Therefore, we're freed from sin's penalty. That is true of all believers in Christ. We read it in our responsive reading this morning from Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you memorized verses as a kid, I trust you got that one. If you didn't memorize verses as a kid, memorize it now. It's a helpful verse upon which to live. There are these sentences that should be popping in our minds all the time to help us get from point A to point B in our lives. And that's one of them. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we're in Christ Jesus. We're united to him. Thus, what he did on the cross extends to us. That's why Paul could write, for you died. He said, but I didn't die. I'm still breathing. It means that when Christ died as your representative, as your substitute, uh, you died. Penalty for sin is gone. That's been taken care of. And then secondly, because of the cross... The power of sin has been defeated, really, in our lives. That is to say, its dominion over us, its rule over us has been, been broken. We were once, according to the scripture, enslaved to sin. Now we're no longer enslaved to sin. That has already taken place. Now what hasn't happened yet in relationship to sin is that the presence of sin has yet to be completely eradicated. One day it will be on the new earth to the return of Christ and all of that, the sin won't be here. It won't be anywhere. It won't be in us. It won't be around us. It won't be in the creation. It won't be anywhere. Everything will be renewed and reflecting the very image of Christ perfectly. But now the presence of sin still exists. It exists in our world. It still resides in us. A day will come when it will be completely eradicated from the earth, from us. Hasn't 
happened yet. So we're in this stage of having it defeated and freed from its penalty and ultimate power and dominion, but now we're faced to fight it. And this is laid out, and I won't spend a lot of time here, but just you need to see that this isn't my idea. Uh, Romans chapter 6, please. Verse 1. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Same thing that Paul's saying in Colossians. Isn't it really nice and comforting to know that when Paul writes, he keeps writing the same thing? That's where I get it from, by the way. He kept writing the same thing. I keep preaching the same thing. It's just really easy to do this. Um, Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So that's the sole work of Christ. We use the word baptizing means we're identified with Christ. We're joined together with him. Now, by the act of baptism, it symbolizes that. But baptized being used here in this sense of, of being united to him, joined together with him. And so we're joined with him. So what he did was done for us so that we might walk in newness of life. Verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So this newness of life and then this resurrection to come. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now what does that mean? Well, he explains. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, we're freed from it. We know it because we've come to faith. We believe. So sin has lost its grip on us. Because if it hadn't, we couldn't believe. How can you believe if sin still has its grip and you're enslaved to it? You live in that kingdom, that dominion. You remember what Paul was saying in Colossians chapter 1, that we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom there is redemption, the forgiveness of sin. That's what he's talking about here. Something happened. We were were transplanted, really, is one way to... To, uh, translate that expression. Transplanted, ripped up out of one kingdom and planted down in another kingdom. Something has happened that has that, that is broken this penalty and power of sin. We're no longer enslaved to it. Verse 7. For one who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Embrace that. Embrace the freedom from sin's condemnation. Embrace, no matter how it feels, the freedom from sin's enslavement. But then Paul says something very interesting. Because I'm ready to go to heaven at this point. You know, in verse 11. And then verse 12 hits me and I'm back. Um... He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Oh, it's still here. It's still around, still tempting, still enticing. And he says, all right, given that the penalty is gone, given that the enslavement is broken, it's still here. Now, what I want you to do is not give in to it. Okay. Don't let it reign in your mortal bodies. It's already broken its reign, so don't give it, don't give it 
Don't enthrone it again. So don't present your members to sin as instruments for righteous, unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you're not under law but under grace. It's exactly what Paul is saying here in Colossians in chapter 3. A little more cryptically here. A little more... Um, uh, fewer words. But uh, same ideas. Something's happened. And so now... He wants us to say, what, in order to deal with this flesh, this inclination of sin, Jerry Bridges, our dear friend, um, defines flesh like this. This is in a footnote to one of his chapters in this book called The Discipline of Grace. He says, today we use the word flesh to render the soft tissue of our physical bodies. The Apostle Paul used it to refer to the sin principle that continues to dwell within us even though we've been freed from sin's dominion. Jerry says, I prefer to use the word flesh instead of sinful nature because the latter term may imply that the believer has two natures, a sinful and a new nature. We have one nature and dwelt and spiritually animated, animated, that is made alive, by the Holy Spirit but also handicapped by sin that continues to dwell within us. And so the issue is dealing with this sin that dwells within us. What's of value there? Paul says, set your mind on Christ. Set your mind on things above. Mind, that is, think about these things. You can't do this without intention. You're involved. We're involved. I'm involved in this. However much I would like to be able to say, I can let go and let God whatever that means. Um, I can't. I'm, I'm to trust him. That's an active thing, to trust him uh, and to set my mind upon him intentionally, to go to him, not to think about these things that cause me to sin or entice me to sin. And when, when Paul says, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's the Lord. Think about Him. And think of the gospel. Think of all that Christ has done. Last week we mentioned the the value of the gospel in fighting our sin. One, it it gives us this great sense that we can really face it. We really be honest about it. Really honest about it. Because we can know that we can go before God and He isn't going to condemn us. He's forgiven it. So so why hide it from Him any longer? Why not deal with it? Lay it out and be honest about it. If we thought that if we mentioned it, then we'd be indicted and and condemned, you'd never mention it. But that isn't the case. We know it's forgiven, so we can mention it. We can talk about it. We can grieve over it. We can agonize over it. We can struggle with it. We can be honest with its enticement to us. We know that God will help us because he's forgiven us. If Christ is for us, who can be against us? He is our advocate. He's the one who's making the case. So we really can deal with it. Whatever is going on in your, the secret compartments of your mind, your heart, your life that you hide, that I hide, that we don't want to think about, we don't want anybody to know about, we keep covering over and over and over again. We're afraid that if anybody else knew about it, they'd kick us out. We're afraid that if God knew about us, he'd send us to hell. Any of that, we can deal with God about it because he's forgiven our sins. And we can lay it out in the open and it doesn't need to be in there festering and tempting and working all the time. And then we receive great strength 
because we reflect on the fact that he must be for us because he's forgiven us. He's called us to himself. And then to know that he loves us, compels us to love him. And that brings great strength even as we, even as we face these things. He says our lives are hidden with Christ in God. In other words, we're safe and secure there, but also that that's where life really is. It's, it's there, not outside of Christ, but it's in Christ. So stay there. Think about him and all that he is and all that he's done and all that he desires. Put our minds there, not on the things that are on earth. And by that expression, he doesn't mean don't think about the things you do all day. Okay? When you drive, think about driving. Don't say, well, I was thinking about Jesus, officer. Um, <laughs> if he's smart, he'll say, Jesus would have wanted you to stop at that stoplight. Right? You're really thinking about him. It would have affected the way you drive. It's not that. He means, it's, if you're a mom, it means that it doesn't say being a mom's not important. If you're a dad, it doesn't mean being a dad isn't important. If you're a doctor or a mechanic or a teacher or a student, he doesn't mean those things are unimportant that we do all day with our lives. That's not the earthly things he's talking about. It's these things of earth that compel us to sin. It's the things related to this flesh, those earthly things. You can tell that even by this passage because he, he defines it for us later. Verse 5, he says, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, those kinds of things. Don't put your mind there. Think about those things. Because they affect everything. Those things affect the way that you're a mom or a dad or a teacher or a student or whatever it is your work is, whatever it is you do in recreation. If you put your mind there, that will affect everything. Put your mind on Christ so that that affects everything that you do. So we put our mind upon him so that the things we do on earth reflect him rather than put our mind on sinful things so that everything we do on earth reflects that. See the difference? So that's his point there. And now you realize this is a very radical word. Notice how he puts it. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore. And he lists a a whole sin list. I'm not going to get into this sin list this week. We'll deal with this next week and the next week. And the next week. These sins, sexual sins, primarily sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, all those seemingly to go in the area of sexual immorality, huge in the scripture. Another expression, he says, verse 8, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Um, That first group of sexual sins will impact all our personal relationships. Those, that second list of sins will impact all of our communal relationships or relationships uh, with each other. Uh, all those important. Why he chose these particular sins, uh, they're representative, certainly, of all kinds of sins, but they're also sins that every generation can relate to. Very specifically, we'll talk about them in particular But the question before us this morning is how do we put them to death? How do we strip them off? I wish I had a formula for you. I wish I could tell you it was going to be easy. I wish I was going to tell you this is a walk in the park. But then I would lose all credibility, I trust, if you're thoughtful at all and if you've lived at all and if you've tried to live a life worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him. 
It isn't a walk in the park. It isn't an easy thing. It's for whatever reason God has for this struggle, it is indeed a struggle. This expression from Colossians 1.29 where Paul says, For this I toil, I struggle with all his energy. It's such an apt expression. It's a great toil, but we know we must do it in him by the Spirit. In fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 13, he puts it, Paul puts it like this. He writes, For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Isn't it interesting that Paul condemns this other group of teachers for making rules for Christians to follow? And he says, if you follow those rules, it won't be any helpful at all. But Paul then doesn't say, therefore, there are now no rules. He doesn't say there are therefore now no things to do. He doesn't say there are therefore now no things not to do. He gives them things not to do and other things to do. And, he, and these are put in the, in the form of commands. So the question is, what's the difference between Paul's rules and commands and their rules and commands? What makes his right and their wrong? theirs wrong? Well, we realize that the antidote to legalism, that is, here are the rules, do them and you'll be accepted, is not what's called antinomianism. I know it's late in the sermon for a big word, but it's really not very big when you break it down. Um, in Greek, as you all know, uh, the word for law is nomos, thus nomian, and everybody knows what anti means. So antinomian is something that's against law. It's no law. But the very point is that we simply don't throw out laws to get away from legalism. We approach the laws differently to get away from legalism with a different heart. When Paul lays these things out, he's saying, listen, I'm not laying these things out so that you will be accepted if you do them. I'm laying these things out because these reflect the heart of God. And now that you belong to him, now that this break from sin has happened because of Christ, which you can't do anything about. You didn't do it. He did it. Now that this break from sin has happened, now I want you to live this way. Not in your own strength, by the Spirit. Not to prove that you're worthy of me but because Christ has done what he did so that you now have new life. Now, here's that new life. I want you to walk consistently with who God has made you to be because of Christ. Notice how he puts it in verse 9. He says, don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self, that is the self before your conversion, the self before your new birth, your self before the fact that, that in your life this penalty and power of sin was broken. He says, don't lie to one another, seeing you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is now being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So any thoughtful person would say, well, what, what is that? What would a life renewed after the image of its creator look like? It would be the natural question. Because you want to be that. That's not who I am. That's who Christ is making me to be. And so you'd ask that question, and Paul would say, well, it isn't this. It isn't sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness. It isn't anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. It isn't lying, but rather, it's this, verse 12. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. 
living in love. And then he'll go on to be more specific. Say, husbands and wives, this is what that means. Children and parents, this is what that means. Slaves, masters, employees, employers in relationship where you have obligations to one another, this is what that looks like. Now go out and live that way. Not so that you'll be counted worthy, not so that you'll receive God's favor, but because you have. You see, I could put it this way. There's a huge difference of simply living for God and living from God. See, we're called first and foremost as followers of Christ to live from him. That is, out of what he's done. Now, it gives the appearance that we're living for him because we're doing things which please him, but, but we can't skip the step of the gospel of being rooted in what he's done. So we live from his strength. We live from his wisdom. We live from his cross work that frees us from the penalty and power of sin. We live from that. If you skip that, you'll die. If you skip that, you'll be frustrated. If you skip that, at best you'll be self-righteous. But that will get you nowhere. John Stott an old guy, not dead yet, but close so I can quote him. Uh, he's a great pastor, theologian. Um, once put it like this, and to be really honest with you, I can't remember if I read it or if he said it. And I heard it, but I wrote it down, I've got it. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, what he does is he first takes us to the law, the law of God, the commandments of God. And that work of the Holy Spirit that takes us to the commandments of God breaks us, convicts us of our sins. And then the Holy Spirit takes us to Christ. And he says, he's obeyed all of these. And then he's taken your penalty upon himself that you might be freed from your sin. Trust in him. And the Spirit gives us new life. And He enables us to believe and we believe. And so all of these things that, that objectively happen now, subjectively are ours. We're, 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 we're convicted of our sin, yet we rely upon Christ. Thus the penalty has been broken. The, pen, the power has been broken of sin in our lives. And then He says what the Holy Spirit then does is He takes us back to the law, meaning the commandments of Christ. And He says, now live them. But not in your own strength. Not from your own wisdom, but by the Spirit, trusting in Him. The commandments are good. The commandments of God. Not the commandments of men. But the commandments of God are good. And He says, don't throw them out. Allow them to work in you. Allow them to bring you to the point of conviction. Allow them to bring to the point of saying, I can't do this. I haven't done them. I'm worthy of condemnation. And then come to Christ. See that he has. And then go back to them in Christ and say, Ah, oh, I hunger and thirst to live a life worthy of Christ, to be fully pleasing to him. The cross enables us to see why Paul was so insistent that we put to death sin. 
Paul mentioned that it was because of these things, the things he listed, that the wrath of God is coming, or we could say always comes. And it's on the cross that we see very clearly this wrath of God. We, we know that the wrath of God isn't God's um, unbridled emotion. We know that it's his reasonable, rational response to our sin. It's exactly what it deserves, what the Bible calls his wrath. For us, Christ has taken it. But when we look in the cross, sin is unmasked. We see what it really wants to do to us. We really think sin, because it gives pleasure for a moment, wants to give us life, but it wants to kill us. John Owen, a great old dead expositor, once said, if we're not killing sin, it'll be killing us. If we're not killing sin, it'll be killing us. When we unmask it, when we see what it really wants to do, it doesn't want to give us pleasure. It wants to kill us. We see that on the cross and what sin did to Jesus. Beat him down. It isolated him from all of his friends. Everyone, everything turned against him. Even God, he was forsaken by his father. That's what these sins desire to do to us. They're not little toys. They're not little playthings. They're real. They desire to kill us. Not only do they desire to kill us, they desire, sin desires to destroy God. Sin is ambitious. It desires to destroy God. It came against Him. Where one being said, I'm glorious and I'm as glorious as God and I can take over in a sense and I'm going to go after the crown of your creation that you created to show yourself to be great and glorious and I'm going to go after, I'm going to turn their hearts away from you, God, and I'm going to turn them towards me desiring to destroy the very glory of God. Now, God, of course, can't be destroyed, and he's glorious, and his glory would be revealed through that in a way that no one would expect it, because we now see the glory of his mercy, the glory of his grace, the glory of his forgiveness, even the glory of his judgment. We see all of that because of this, but, but sin's out really even to destroy God. All that should turn us from sin to say, oh, kill it. Let's put it to death. Now, obviously, that's a figurative kind of statement. It isn't a literal thing. We don't maim ourselves. That's not its point. When Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. He didn't mean that we're supposed to be one-handed, one-eyed people. But he meant that's how serious all this is. Don't let it destroy you. And the word of the apostle is, you needn't. Its penalty's been taken. Embrace that. Its power has been broken. Now, don't give yourselves up to it. Put it to death. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. He took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What are we proclaiming? What are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming what? Christ has come. And in his coming, he lived a perfect life, his righteousness for us. 
obeyed the law. In his coming, he died. What did he do when he died? We, with him, those who believe, united to him. We died to the penalty of sin, its condemnation. He rose. We rose with him in newness of life so that we can now walk in a manner worthy of him, fully pleasing to him. How? By putting to death sin. How? By seeking the things that are above, by putting our eyes upon him, not on sin. By seeing sin's intention to destroy and to kill and to hate it and not walk in it and put on Christ. Let me ask you to bow. Just take a minute, please, as I take a minute. And again, think about your life. You thought earlier in the service, particular sins, to confess to Lehout. Think again of your life. And let me ask you to just quietly, as a follower of Christ, even as I pray, that it would, you, would be your intention, your desire with the help of the Spirit to set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You would set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death. That would be your intention, following after Christ. Pray that he would grant his spirit to help you. And as you fall, and as you fail, that you would trust him still to forgive, to lift you up, to give you strength. Father in heaven, we come as your people before your word at your table. We pray that we would take our lives, God, as seriously as you do that we would see that we live to your glory the one who has saved us and so we pray that we would live from you the strength that you give the wisdom that you give live from all that Christ has done enable us I pray to put to death to strip off these sins which so easily entangle us. Help us. I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and use it in such a way that we would fellowship, meet with Christ here. He's not present by way of his body, obviously, but we trust that he's present spiritually with us in a way that he knows and he intends, therefore, to meet with us and to bless us. So I pray that by way of this supper, this meal together, this meal with him, 
that our faith would increase, that we would be strengthened to enable us to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, This table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in His sovereign mercy. All those who have been taken to the law of God and who have seen themselves offenders against God. And yet, all those too who have been taken to Christ and have seen Him as righteous and holy and the very representative of their lives and sacrifice for them. And that we believe and trust in Him as He's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners. And all those who desire it then, as followers of Christ, understanding all that took place, now desire to, to really walk worthy of Him, fully pleasing to Him, to put to death sin and to put on Christ. If that be true for you, let me ask you to come. Now these two sections down the aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and say, my life is hidden with Christ in God. Please come.